0: Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Today, they've got a special guest on the show. That is Edward Gordon. Michael, why'd you bring Edward on the show today?
2: Uh, hello, Eric. Good to good to talk with you today. We Absolutely. brought, we brought uh, Edward on as one of our specialists that works with uh, a great uh, number of our families, and he's uh, been a good colleague of ours for quite a while now. And uh, we brought Edward on from Preservation Capital Partners, uh, as a specialist in the private placement life insurance world. And that's going to be our topic for today. So that that's why we brought Edward on. Ed, thank you for being here. Excellent. It's, it's so, exciting world for you, Ed, these days, correct? Busy world. And, absolutely.
3: And why, I'm going to jump in here, Michael, why, why this is an important podcast? Because what's going on in Washington is concerned a lot of our families about some tax planning with anticipation of of rates going up. and We're not sure where they're going to go, but uh, everyone believes that something's going to change. So Ed's program is very, very tax efficient. And if anybody understands life insurance, if you go back to some of our podcasts, I think we discussed a bunch of this in earlier podcasts, but life insurance has a very interesting characteristic to to the fact that everything that grows in that policy grows tax-free if you handle it correctly, you could take it out tax-free. So I think Ed's going to talk about a special institutional level program that is available to qualified clients in this arena. So Ed, I'm just going to turn it back to you and and, and let's talk about where this started and maybe history of life insurance and and talk about how institutions are using this program.
4: Some of the attributes of a life insurance policy make it conducive for people to want to not only buy it for the death benefit protection, but for one of the other more current living tax attributes. And that is that the cash value of a life insurance policy grows entirely free of taxation, much like an annuity, or an IRA, or a Roth. So when somebody puts premium into a life insurance policy, obviously there's some expenses involved, and after that, whatever money is left over pours into this, for lack of a better term, the investment bucket. And in a traditional insurance policy like whole life or regular universal life, that cash value is invested by the insurance company in the insurance company's general account. So typically the insurance company is going to invest that money into bonds and mortgages and fixed income instruments. That's why the insurance companies have They're so concerned about their ratings, uh, so they invest in a very conservative way. In the early 80s, a product came out called Variable Life. And in a Variable Life policy, that cash value bucket is not invested in the general account of the insurance company. It's actually held in a segregated account, which makes it not subject to the insurance company's creditors unlike the whole life where if the insurance company went out of business or had financial trouble your cash value could be subject to forfeiture by the to the creditor in a variable life policy you you don't have that issue because it's a segregated account and in those policies the insurance companies typically allow you to choose from a selection of investments that are on their platform, typically mutual funds or ETFs or some types of more uh, vanilla Wall Street investments, if you want to call it that. Because wealthy people can do things that other people can, there are institutional models of these contracts, which we call private placement variable life. And in those contracts, the cost structure of the product is de minimis. It's not retail, it's wholesale. And the investment choices are far sexier. In one model, the insurance company has on their platform, instead of those plain vanilla mutual funds, they have, they have hedge funds and other types of investments that are a little bit more conducive to the true investor. The world that we live in, we build custom-built products where rather than the insurance company allowing you to choose a group of assets to invest in, we can choose a manager. And that manager can invest in a myriad of things as long as they comply with a couple of the rules. But this product gives the flexibility to the insurance policy owner to invest in a a far broader, more flexible open architecture a grouping of investments.
3: All right, Ed, let's talk about some of the institutions that use these programs, like banks and corporations. You want to walk through that a little bit?
4: Sure. So banks and other institutions, corporations, insurance companies, they may have a lot of money sitting on hand in the world of corporations. We call those treasury assets. In the world of banks, that may be non-loanable reserve dollars, and they typically aren't going to let that money sit there. They're going to want to invest it. So they may insure a bunch of their executives on either individual policies or group policies. And the bank or the corporation is the owner and beneficiary of these policies. And they might take those assets that are sitting on their books and pay premium with them. Once the money is inside the policy in the form of cash value, they then can invest that money, depending on the flavor of the contract they bought, whether it's traditional insurance or variable life or private placement insurance, that money is now invested in a tax-favored environment growing entirely free of taxation, which obviously, if you're a large corporation and you're doing this with a couple hundred million dollars... Not paying taxes on those investments may have an impact on your bottom line and the assets that you show on your annual report as an improvement. We call that COLI, Corporate Owned Life Insurance. When banks do it, it's called BOLI, Bank Owned Life Insurance. And when insurance companies do it, it's called IOLI, Insurance Company Owned Life Insurance.
3: So that's been around quite some time, and a lot of people have never heard of private placement structures. But actually, it's been around for for decades. And and we've had conversations in the past that internationally, this is a very very popular program, mostly here in the United States. Am I correct?
4: Correct. You're in Europe, Asia, and there's lot South Africa. There's lots of places where life insurance has the same or similar attributes to the policies here in the United States for keeping the taxation of that cash value from being taxed on an annual basis. Different rules, different countries, but this is the way a lot of people around the world invest their money um, so that it's not subject to current taxation and it may even help For instance, uh, a non-U.S. taxpayer who invests in certain U.S. assets may be subject to U.S. taxes. And these policies may be a good place to hold those assets so they wouldn't be subject to U.S. taxation.
2: I mean, that's a really, really powerful tool. Uh, Ed, I I know, uh, apart from being a a great design specialist in this private placement life insurance world, I know you're a, a very good planner in your own right and we recently did some podcasts on the SECURE Act and the, and the impact that that will have on really the IRA community um, that, that you know, really where a lot of people have their retirement savings uh, sort of stored in. Can, can you walk through maybe how this strategy with a private placement life insurance policy could maybe help combat some of the negative effects of the SECURE Act?
4: Yeah, so one of the things the SECURE Act did is it limited the number of years that a beneficiary can hold assets in a qualified plan before they're forced to take it out and pay taxes. Wealthy people, those people I would characterize as people that are subject to estate taxes, have a real issue when it comes to qualified plans like IRAs or pensions and so on, because those assets are not only subject to income tax, but they may also be subject to an estate tax. Here in New York, you're, you're looking at a you know, over 70% tax effect on those assets. So holding those assets in those types of plans may not be the greatest thing in the world. If you're really willing to do some planning, you may want to bite the bullet today, take after-tax dollars, fund life insurance policies, like a private placement life policy, and let the money grow entirely tax-free. Not only can you let it grow tax-free, but unlike an IRA or a Roth, I can own a life insurance policy outside of my taxable estate. So I can own it in a spousal access trust in in a trust where money grows entirely tax-free. There are three ways of getting money out of life insurance policies. You can just surrender the policy at some point in time and pay the tax. That would work similar to the IRA. You could surrender, I'm sorry, you could borrow from the policy. And typically when you borrow from the insurance policy, borrowing is tax-free. So you're basically borrowing against your future death benefit. And the third way is when the insurer dies, all of the assets of the policy go to the beneficiary entirely free of taxation. To use the wrong terminology with the same effect, all of the assets in the policy get a free step up in basis upon the death of the insured because it comes out as tax-free death benefit.
2: Yeah. And that that last point that you brought up, Ed, is I think really important depending on how potential tax law changes will go. And, And obviously that's still, at least as we're recording this today, still up in the air, but there are proposals out there to eliminate the stepped-up income tax basis at, at death. And if that does come to fruition, that I, I believe I'm correct in saying would probably make this structure, private placement, life insurance, or really any permanent life insurance structure, probably a lot more valuable, correct?
4: Yeah. And we're seeing that already in in planning or doing anything. You have people that are early innovators you know, on one end of the spectrum, and then you have sheep on the other end which are people that just follow what other people have done we see a lot of these early innovators or early thinkers deciding to do planning ahead of time and not to worry about the whims of congress whether it be this administration or the next or the one three administrations down from moving tax law around and you know you're going to play the game of Roulette as to when you're going to pass away and expect to know what those tax laws are going to be at that time. You know, you're just you're just kidding yourself. You're just making lawyers and accountants and planners wealthy by constantly have to revamp plans. So by owning assets in tax favored vehicles like private placement insurance. Greatly diminishes the need to to keep on changing your planning based on whatever the winds of Congress are as far as tax planning go.
3: Yeah, some of the questions we we always get asked. Um, we have introduced this concept to our to our families. Is that a What's the cost of this program? Because they relate obviously a commission to life insurance, and what and the other question they ask us is what's the chance of they they are changing the rules around life insurance cash value grow and tax-free. So what is your take on those two issues?
4: So the cost structure of a private place and life policy is really across the board. It really depends on how sophisticated the policy is, what it's investing in. But, but typically you can create a contract where the fee structure, absent of the setup costs, which really is indicative of the complexity of it, Uh, But on an ongoing basis, to run the insurance contract from the insurance company's perspective, you're looking at under 1% of asset value a year. And then whatever the managers charge to manage those assets. So if you just have money that's sitting in ETFs, really doing nothing, we can negotiate a good deal with a money manager, that would be pretty inexpensive. But if your policy was invested in, you know, various hedge funds and private equity deals and all sorts of other stuff, you're going to need an, an advisor on that policy who knows what they're doing and should get paid for what they do well. Those fees, are, those fees of the asset manager are not part of the insurance contract. They're, those are fees that are billed to the insurance contract, but it's not part of the you know, 1% or less of the ongoing insurance company fees. To your other question, what do I think is going to happen with cash value life insurance? Well, for the last 30 years that I've been in the business, the IRS has always tried to convince Congress that they should do something about the tax-free buildup of life insurance policies. Nothing's ever come to fruition. No bills have ever come out, as far as I know. The insurance lobby is incredibly powerful. It would really have a dramatic effect on a lot of people if you start taxing the inside buildup of life insurance policies. The good thing is that historically all changes in law regarding life insurance contracts has always been prospective on policies issued after date of enactment. Prior to 1988, the, these types of contracts, variable life or regular life insurance, were more cost efficient because the amount of death benefit you needed on these contracts was very little. Um, At some point, the IRS convinced Congress that that wasn't life insurance because there wasn't any real risk to the insurance company. So they started mandating through a formula as to how much death benefit you needed to make this an insurance policy and get all of those tax-favored benefits. When they changed the law in 1988, it was only for policies issued after date of enactment. All policies written prior to that date are exempt. We actually call, there's actually a name for them. They're called pre-TEFRA policies. TEFRA being the Tax Reform Act of 86, I think.
3: Getting back to the the cost, there are no commissions paid in this program, am I correct? Not like a regular retail program.
4: Uh, Some contracts do. From the larger carriers, they'll pay, but from the client's perspective, it's, the, the deficit or the hit to the cash value account is minimal. Uh, the insurance company basically finances that compensation up front. Other insurance contracts, especially the ones that are truly custom built, the insurance company doesn't pay commissions. Uh, there may be fees in the contract that are paid to the person who created the contract or helps the insurance company manage the process every year and they may get paid up refer fee or, okay. but uh, and th- those come out of the contract and that's part of that 1% or less that we talked about.
3: Okay, you mentioned there's a couple of rules in this program you have to be aware of. Can you walk through those, uh, those rules?
4: Sure. There's only two rules. I mean, one rule says that the owner of the insurance contract may not dictate on a granular specific basis as to what is bought and sold by the cash value account. So you can go out and pick managers, but you can't call the manager and tell them to go long IBM. Just like in the retail product you can't call the manager of a specific mutual fund and tell them what to do, but you can select the mutual fund. In the true custom version of private placement insurance you could pick the manager You can give the, well, the insurance company picks the manager by your recommendation. Uh, You can give the insurance company a recommendation of the types of investments you want. You can have that investment philosophy statement updated on a regular basis. The insurance company can fire the managers at your request and move to other managers as long as they're approved by the insurance company. But you can't call the manager and say, I want you to buy Apple stock. Matter of fact, that was an example uh, that was used in a report that the GAO handed to Senator Grassley on looking into the abuses of these types of policies as to where, where those abuses would be. And that those direct type of recommendations of what they call the violation of investor control or an owner control. And there are a lot of ways to deal with that and make sure that that doesn't happen. There is a, there's a couple of There's actually one court case on it, which is the case of Weber, which if anybody needs, I have a library of information, including articles I've written on on that subject. The other test is something that is more of an ongoing maintenance test, and that is diversification. The insurance policy has certain rules that they must meet. That is that on the last day of each quarter, no one asset can make up more than 55% of that investment bucket. No two assets combined can make up 70%. No three assets combined can make up 80%. No four assets together can make up 90%. So in essence, you need about five assets. There is an alternative test that says that you could test based off of money that you invested and not current market value. I'll give you an example. If you had a million dollars in the policy and you invested $200,000 into each of five investments, well, you clearly meet diversification. If one of those assets got pregnant and swelled in value to be worth $5 million on its own, the alternate valuation Test says that you're still diversified because we look at what you invested, not the current market value.
3: That's a huge advantage, no doubt.
4: Yeah. Otherwise, you'd be relegated to really only liquid investments that you have to. You know, you may have to move around on a on a quarterly basis just to constantly meet diversification. There are two ways that these policies are managed. One is, as I said earlier, what's called the IDF model. And these are basically funds that are already on an insurance company's platform that each one of these funds by themselves meet diversification. So the fund manager is dealing with those diversification issues in their own fund. So I can put 100% of my investment into XYZ uh, insurance dedicated fund. The other model, called the separate managed account model, is where your policy in and of itself is its own insurance-dedicated fund, and your manager must manage that account to meet those diversification requirements.
2: Is there a um, difference, Ed, from a structure? Are most in the IDF model that, that you work with, and are there pros and cons to either of those?
4: So there's a larger percentage of the products that we deal with and the clients we deal with are more open architecture and use a separate managed account model where we're hiring several different managers, maybe somebody at Goldman Sachs, maybe somebody at Morgan Stanley or Copper Beach or other places where we may have one or several managers managing assets. But we do have a a number of policies or insurance contracts, I should call them, where the clients just choosing insurance dedicated funds. Whether it's just temporary because it was just easier to do at that point and the funds that were available were things that, that they liked, or that's just the way they, and they were going to hold that until such time that as, as they mature and then they start bringing on other managers. But, you know, we do have a couple of insurance contracts where the hedge fund itself has a insurance dedicated fund and the client, instead of investing in a taxable way in their own name, invested into that fund through their insurance contract. And they wanted to put a hundred percent of their money into that hedge fund. So that brings me to a technical point. If hedge fund number one was open to the investing public, then regardless of how many underlying investments are in that hedge fund, that, insure, that, con, that investment only counts as one investment for the insurance contract. However, if that hedge fund had a second fund and that second fund was only available to life insurance policies or annuities, we call that an insurance dedicated fund, I could put 100% of my money in there because it is the fund's responsibility to meet diversification. Right. Whereas if I had a policy manager, the separate managed account, that manager is responsible for meeting diversification. So they can invest into a non-insurance dedicated fund as long as that fund never represents more than 55% of the overall investment bucket.
2: All right. So there's a lot of complexity there, which is why you know, having a, a good manager that knows what they're doing here is is really important because if you try to go down this avenue and aren't aware of those rules, that could be problematic. I, I'm assuming, Ed, that there are, are there hefty penalties associated with violating uh, those rules or how, how is that, how does that typically work?
4: Yeah. I mean, if you violate diversification, you blew the tax-favored nature of your life insurance policy. It's no longer Life insurance policy. You may not get the same tax benefits on growth.
2: Yeah, that's a big that's a big issue if you're doing, going into this structure for the reasons that you're going into it for sure.
4: Although there there are remedies. I mean, for instance, I don't think the tax code is that black and white that says on the last day of the quarter if you blew diversification, you're you're done. I think that uh, a reasonable reading of that section would say that you you if you took the measures to correct it quickly and, and did that, I, I think yeah, that you'd probably right. not lose it. The, the goal is never to get close to that and never to get to that point of the last day of the quarter and not be diversified. Yeah.
3: And you mentioned annuities a couple of times on the podcast. You could also have the same private placement structure in annuities because most people look at annuities as being a, a retail annuity, being expensive to manage and get involved with. This particular private placement strategy carries the same lesser expense as the insurance contract, am I correct?
4: Yeah, so basically the annuity is nothing more than the cash bucket of the life insurance policy without the death benefit attached to it. Right. The drawback of annuity is that you never get away from taxes it's just a deferral mechanism you can't borrow money out tax-free when you take money out of an annuity you pay tax if you're under 59 and a half there's also a penalty when the annuitant dies it's considered to be income in respect of a decedent the annuity is a great accumulating device If you're going to leave money to charity, if it's going to be subject to an estate tax and an income tax, it's tax basically no different than that IRA we talked about earlier, you're going to lose about 70% of the account. So by having the annuity left to charity, you get rid of all of those taxes. Also, you get rid of all of your money, but if that's your goal to give away money to charity, that may be a very good funding vehicle to do it.
2: Yeah, and that's why a lot of planning goes into this—not uh, just the the structure itself, but how does it fit in a in a plan? And listeners know that that's you know we, we're very, obviously very big proponents of that. And, and one question I also wanted to ask you, Ed, is we're I think getting a little uh, close to the end of today's podcast, but we're really big fans of telling stories and case studies and, and explaining in a real-world context maybe how this structure might work. Is, is there a case study that you can share with us that really illustrates putting these pieces together?
4: Sure. Um, I had a client who, as part of their portfolio, owned about $10 million worth of closed-end mutual funds that had these very high coupons uh, these credit mutual funds if you want to call them that and those coupons were taxed as all ordinary income so you know on 10 million dollars he was earning somewhere between 900 to a million to a year in taxable income of which he really didn't need so what we did is we sold off those mutual funds we created a private placement life policy we funded the policy with 10 million dollars in cash and the manager went out and bought a portfolio of those types of mutual funds meeting the diversification test now all of those closed end credit mutual funds are now sitting inside the cash value account of the insurance policy and they're kicking off you know 9 to 12% a year or whatever they're doing and rather than paying taxation of close to 50% there's about a 85 Basis point drag for the insurance company's fees on those assets, which is we always, you know, pretty simple statement. If the fees of the insurance contract are less than the taxes you would have been paying, then it's probably worth pursuing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ed, you know, this is great today. Uh, We always uh, look forward to your educating us on on creative designs. Uh, as we said earlier, we're working on several cases with you that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, but I want to, again, thank you for your time today and look forward to
2: keep working with you along the way here. Michael? Well, thank,
4: thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, thank you again, Ed. This is great.
1: Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks again, everybody. Ed, this was fantastic. Again, thank you so much. Obviously, I'm going to just echo what Michael said just a moment ago. The complexity of what you spoke about anybody listening to this needs to reach out to uh, Copper Beach and just have a conversation so they can put them in touch with you. Uh, Michael, what's the best way to get a hold of Copper Beach if somebody wants to ask more questions about this?
2: Well, sure. You can, you can always reach us on our website, which is www.cbfgllc.com. Or you could call us on the phone. It's area code 856-988-8300. And uh, we're also on LinkedIn as well. So you can reach out to us via
1: social media if that is your preference. Fantastic. Ed, thanks again. Of course, John and Michael, thank you so much for bringing Ed on the show. And our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes
5: only. Neither
0: APFS nor
5: its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax legal or accounting professional before making any decisions. Copper Beach is not affiliated with American Portfolios Financial Services Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors Inc. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC, investment advisory and financial planning services offered through American Portfolio Advisors Inc., an SCC registered investment advisor. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Any opinion expressed in this forum is not the opinions of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy.